from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to uh, challenging words. Sometimes uh, Revelation is a a difficult book to understand, so we pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight. Um, And Father, I pray that we just wouldn't understand the words and the meaning, but we would take them to heart, that they would begin to reshape our thinking, reshape our hearts, reshape our lives. Especially this morning, Lord, as we get a different frame on the nature of reality and what's really going on in the universe. Pray that you do that by the power of your spirit in mighty ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Father John Powell wrote a book called Fully Human, Fully Alive. And in the book, he argues that your frame of reference, how you view the world, determines much of the quality of your life. He writes this, Through the eyes of our minds, you and I look out at reality, ourselves, other people, life, the world, God. However, we see things differently. Your vision of reality is not mine, and conversely, mine is not yours. Both our visions are limited and inadequate, but not to the same extent. We have both misinterpreted and distorted reality, but in different ways. We've each seen something of the available truth and beauty to which the other has been blind. The main point is that it is the dimensions and clarity of this vision 
that determines the dimensions of our world and the quality of our lives. To the extent that we are blind or have distorted reality, our lives and our happiness have been diminished. Consequently, if we are to change, to, to grow, there must first be a change in this basic vision or perception of reality. I think what the book of Revelation does for us is gives us a new way of seeing reality. It, in a sense, is like putting on, I would say, kingdom glasses. Uh, and with them, we see the world differently. Now, the truth is all of us have glasses on. Some of them are tinted, and that tint colors our world. Some of them are distorted or, in a sense, kind of like the wrong prescription. And what we see isn't really corresponding to the nature of things. The truth is things are not as they seem. Revelation is written, though, to correct that. We began our study again last week with Dave Matheson, and he gave us kind of an overview of the book. And he really made the argument that in chapter 4 and 5, what we do is we get a glimpse into heaven where God's will is being done. His kingdom, in a sense, reigns in heaven. And then he argued that the rest of the book is really an answer to the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The rest of the book is how the kingdom comes on earth. And we see that unfolded in all kinds of ways. And that's the story of Revelation. So this morning, we want to focus in on that first vision. Chapter 4 and 5 is kind of a unified vision. We're going to focus in on chapter Five. Chapter 4 kind of sets the scene for us. A door has been opened. Uh, John has gone through the door into the realm of heaven. It's as if Jesus has pulled back the curtain on the supernatural realm. And, and now we get to see things from a different perspective. So my hope is, is that as we go through chapter 5, which is really a drama of what is happening in the throne room, we, in a sense, will be putting on Revelation chapter 5 glasses to see the world differently. So what I want to do this morning is talk about the events in chapter 5 in terms of six scenes. A drama is being played out. And then at the end of those scenes, I want to come back and talk about six implications uh, that flow from having Revelation 5 glasses on. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's start with scene one, the scroll. Revelation 5.1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Uh, the books of those days were typically scrolls. Uh, they did have what we call codexes, which are like our books today, where you take pieces of paper and bind them on one side and can open them up. Those are a codex. But most of the books in that day were in the form of a scroll, uh, a long uh, piece of paper, in a sense, that had probably sticks at both ends that was rolled together. The scroll was made of papyrus, a plant that is found near the Nile. It's kind of like rhubarb. If you take a piece of papyrus, you can nick it and peel off a strand of cellulose material. And that's what they would do. They, they'd pull these strands off and they would lay them vertically. And then they'd pull more strands off and lay those horizontally. And, and then they'd beat the crud out of them. And the papyrus liquid had a glue kind of action to it that would bind the papyrus together. Some people think they actually used an organic kind of glue. 
But the end result is you'd have what was like a piece of paper. And the great thing about this papyrus paper, it was uh, kind of very resistant to rot. Uh, we have papyri that is thousands of years old that they would write on. Then they would take these pieces of papyrus that they had turned into paper and they would lay them up against each other and they'd form a long, a long strip, maybe 16, 17 inches wide, up to 32, 34 feet long. And that would be the paper that they would write on and that would be considered a book. So here we have this scroll. But what is unique about this scroll is that it is written on both sides. Typically, you would only write on the inside of the scroll because the papyrus is laid out horizontally and you'd have ridges. It's kind of a ridge material. And if you were writing left to right, which they did in Greek, you would go along with the ridges. But if you were to try and write on the outside or the back of the scroll, the ridges ran vertically. So you'd have to be writing over the ridges to write on the back. So typically they only wrote on the inside. The two times that you would write on the back of a scroll was one, if you were so poor you couldn't buy any more papyri paper. And so it's all you had. So you would take the time to tediously write out on the back of the scroll. Or you wanted everything you were writing to be in one place, not in multiple scrolls. So uh, I'd be afraid it would be lost. So if you wanted the complete picture, you'd write on the back. This scroll is written both on the front and on the back. And then it is sealed with, with uh, seven seals. You could drip wax on the joint of where the papyrus ended and came together on the scroll. And then you could take a signet ring and, and press it into the wax and leave an impression. And that impression would identify that scroll as belonging to to you. Now, to enact what was in the scroll, you had to break the seals. And if you broke the seals, it was a way of saying you had the power to enact what was inside. So we have the scroll of Vespasian, which was his last will and testament. It was sealed with seven seals. And those seals were not broken until he died, so the scroll could be enacted. That's why the seals had to be broken. But why seven of them? In most places in scripture, when you get a number, the reason you get the number is it's a description of a number. Uh, it's like when we're told that the disciples caught 153 fish when they throw the, threw the net where Jesus told them to. The reason it's 153 is because they didn't catch 152 or 154. They caught 153. Make sense? But that's not true in the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature uses symbols and numbers and colors to, to communicate something beyond the obvious. So when we're given the number seven, it has meaning in the book of Revelation. And typically it means perfection or completeness. So, so what is this scroll that is sealed up, that is perfect and complete, written both on the inside and on the outside? A lot of debate, but I think the best explanation of that scroll is simply that these are the purposes and the plans of God in history. All his judgments and all his blessings. The secret of how history is going to unfold to accomplish his purposes. And that fits with the rest of the context of the book of Revelation because once the seals are broken, the judgments begin to come out 
from the seals. And it's like the purposes of God are going to be enacted. Scene one, the scroll. Scene two, the challenge. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? That's a great question. Because remember the setting. The scroll is in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. We're told the one sitting on the throne is God himself. And in chapter 4, you get a picture of God that is of his transcendent glory. It's just this amazing description of who God is. And it's frightening. (laughs) You get a sense of his holiness. And the question here is, who can walk into the presence of God's holiness? Take the scroll out of his right hand, which is the the hand of authority and power. Take that scroll and then have the wisdom and authority to to slit the, the seals and enact the purposes of God. Who has the ability to do that? Which gets us to scene three. Silence. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. You know, uh, he's saying, look, they can't even begin to imagine what's in the scroll. They can't even take a sneaky peek to see what's going to happen. Nobody in heaven, that means no angelic. You know, we've seen these cherubim, the four creatures that are around the throne of God that are amazing with eyes and wings and everything on the back and the front. Amazing, they can't do it. The 24 elders in the thrones around the throne of God that represents the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament, they they can't do it. The angelic host that that is around uh, circling the throne, they can't do it. No spirit, no angel, no angelic power, no angelic being, nothing in heaven has the ability to slit the seals and open the scroll or on earth. Humans can do some amazing things. Uh, we can build some amazing buildings. We, we can create incredible computers and have unbelievable technology. We can write great art and great poetry. But we can't get anywhere close to enacting the ultimate purposes of God. We don't have that kind of wisdom or that kind of power. So nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth, even in the realm of the dead, there is no one or no spirit that has this kind of ability, this kind of power. They can't even look on the inside. No one. Scene four, weeping. John writes, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The word here for wept is this really strong word. It's, it's not that John is kind of teary. It's that he's wailing. He, he's in utter despair. He weeps and he weeps because nobody can take the scroll and break the seals. And the question you have to ask is why? Why is John weeping? Well, John understands that this scroll represents the purposes and the plan of God, both in judgment and redemption in terms of the kingdom. And he knows that if there's no one who can slit the seals and enact the purposes of God, then there is no grand story that gives meaning to life. 
Now remember, John is writing to these seven churches. And these seven churches that he's writing to have been through hard times. Some of them have been undergoing persecution. Some of them have been martyred. And he understands that, that if there's no story, then the people who have lost their lives have lost their lives for nothing. The people who are living lives of self-denial, they're, they're denying themselves for nothing. Uh, those who are undergoing persecution, if there's no grand story, if the purposes of God are not happening, uh, then it's meaningless. Uh, if there's no grand story, that means there will never be recompense. Things will never be made right. There will be no justice. And, and John knows that he lives in this fallen world filled with fallen people. And if the plans of God for judgment and redemption are, are not going to be unfolded, then there's no sense of ever being forgiven. So he weeps because he understands if there's no grand story, then the only legitimate response is despair. Bertrand Russell was an atheist, a British atheist writer, wrote a number of books. Probably his most famous was a book entitled Why I'm Not a Christian. When Russell was in his 80s, he was interviewed by the BBC. And they asked him, he said, you know, you're getting near death. We're just curious what you have to hang on to as you get closer. And Russell said this. He says, I'm nothing to hang on to except grim, unyielding despair. Now, I, I don't agree with Russell about very many things. But I agree with him in that, that if there's no grand story, there's nothing bigger than ourselves, then we have nothing to hang on to other than grim, unyielding despair. If there's no grand story, there's no meaning in life. There's no purpose. If there's no grand story, there's no justifications for ethics or morality. Live any way you want, because in the end, it doesn't matter. We're all going to be destroyed. Uh, if there's no grand story, there's no answers to the fundamental questions of life, like why are we here and where were you going, and, and, and what does it all mean? Nothing. So you live in despair. <laughs> it's like the two little boys who were at an amusement park. They didn't have much money, so they were really choosy about the rides they'd ride. One of the little boys wanted to ride the merry-go-round. The other little boy decided he wasn't going to. So the one kid got on the merry-go-round, had a great time, got off, came back to his friend and said, you know what, why wouldn't you ride the merry-go-round? The young guy said, look, it's like this. You give them all your money. You get off where you got on. And in the end, you haven't been anywhere. If there's no grand story, that's life. But you see, people can't live that way. So they ignore the question, or by fiat, they create a fiction of meaning. They just assume arbitrarily that it, it, it must mean something, because if it means something, they know they can live, and if it means nothing, they know they can't. So they live with this fiction, and it holds up fine until you begin to poke at it and ask them why. Why should you do good and not evil? 
How do you find meaning and purpose? What's the larger story? Why does your life matter? John weeps for good reason. Scene five. The lion and the lamb. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. <laughs> he said, look, there, there's hope. Somebody can open the seals. It's the lion of Judah. And suddenly you're back into Genesis chapter 49 where we're told about Judah who's one of the sons, the, one of the patriarchs. Uh, he is the, the lion cub. Judah is the lion cub. And, and it's a way of saying, look, the Messiah, this coming king is going to come out of the tribe of Judah. That's the lion. The Messiah is coming, the one who, who can implement the plans of God. And then we're told he's the root of David. And Jesus is called the root of David in the last book of the Revelation. And that image goes all the way back to Isaiah 11 where we're told that, that uh, the Messiah is the sprout and the root of the tribe of Jesse. He's saying there's this, this Messiah coming who, who has triumphed. And, and I like this word, word triumph because it's the, the Greek word nakao, which my name comes from. And it means to conquer. But it means you've conquered over an opposing foe. It's not like this lion walks into the presence of God, just saunters up and takes the scroll. It's like there's this huge struggle that has taken place. But he's won. He's triumphed. Now, here's where it gets bizarre. John has been listening to the elder. Look, the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse. He turns to look. And he's expecting to see what? A, a ferocious, a ferocious lion. And what does he see? A lamb. It's the most astounding mixed metaphor in the history of literature. And, and, and he's not saying, look, it was half a lion, half a lamb. You know, the body of a lion and the face of a lamb. He's not saying that. He's saying the lion really was a lamb. <laughs> there are two words that are used for lamb in the New Testament. One is a word that means uh, an adult sheep. And the other is a word that means a little lamb, like Mary's little lamb. And the word used here is little lamb. Isn't that strange? I mean, when nations want to pick an animal to represent them, they, they typically pick an animal, right, uh, uh, that has power and is ferocious. So the Russia, you know, you have the bear. And, and France has the tiger. And Britain has the lion. And the Mar United States has the bald eagle. Canada has the beaver, but we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> Because they want to represent the ferociousness uh, of this animal. And yet here is God saying, look, here's the, one who can, here's the one who has the wisdom. Here's the one who has the power. This is the one that has the ability. The lamb. What? Yeah, the lamb. The little lamb. He's an amazing lamb, though. Look, look at what he says. I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders and the lamb had seven horns 
and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So this, this lamb has seven horns and horns in the revelation represent power or authority. And seven is the notion of completeness or perfection, perfect authority, complete power, kingly authority. This lamb has immense power. And seven eyes, and the eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. It's this notion of omniscience. This, this lamb knows all, has amazing wisdom, power and wisdom. But notice what else. If we go back to the verse. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The word there could be better translated slaughtered. Slaughtered. This lamb is bloody. Its neck is cut. Slaughtered. You know, in John's day, there was apocalyptic literature that told about a warrior lamb that led the people of God in conquering a beast. But in all that literature about that warrior lamb, it, it, it never says how the lamb conquered. But John knows the lamb conquered by sacrificing itself. Don't miss that because that's the secret of history. The kingdom, God's plan, is ushered in through the slaughter of the lamb that gave himself. And notice this. The lamb doesn't come from the outside. Notice that uh, the lamb is standing at the center of the throne. Wait, wait a second. I, uh, uh, yeah, there's a throne, but who's on the throne? God is on the throne. But now he looks at the throne and there's a lamb standing in the very midst of God himself. He's one with God. He's the lamb. He is the one of immense power and immense knowledge and wisdom who sacrifices himself. And thus he has the power and the wisdom to slit the seals and to initiate the purposes of God in history. Scene six. Cosmic worship. He went and he took the scroll. Right? The lamb, though slaughtered, is alive. So he goes and he takes the scroll from the right hand, the hand of power of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the, the cherubim who are around the throne and the 24 elders who are sitting on thrones around God's throne fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. We, we think of harp as this, you know, mellow instrument and that this is like worship of a dirge 
This is not, their harps were more like a banjo. I mean, this is a, a, a picture of celebration. They're kind of getting down. This is raucous worship, but it's extreme worship. And then he talks about these, these golden bowls that are full of incense that are coming up. You see, if nobody can slit the seals and open the scroll and implement the plans of God, then you can pray all you want until the cows come home. It's not going to make a difference, not at all. But if there is one who can open the scrolls and initiate the plan of God, then you pray. Because then your prayers make a difference. Because history is heading someplace. So, so this angelic host around the throne of God breaks out into incredible worship. And they begin to sing a new song. The old song was in chapter 4, which worshiped God because he was the creator. Now they're worshiping the slain lamb. Why? Because he's worthy. You were slain and with your blood. Notice what he did. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and, and, and nation. The, the trajectory of history is that God is bringing together a multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual community of his talk about globalization. This is globalization in its end form. This is the community of God from every tribe, culture, language, people group, color in the world. That's where hist history is headed. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. That's the new song. And not only does the throne, worm, throne room worship, but, but the whole angelic host begins to worship. Thousands and tens of thousands of angelic beings begin to worship the slain lamb who is now alive. And then we're told that every creature in the universe turns to worship the lamb. Wow. So what's the point? Because Jesus is the one who is able to enact the purpose of God in judgment and in blessing. In other words, to bring about the kingdom. We must worship him. Say, so, okay, Nick, but... If that's a Revelation 5 prescription that we're putting on, so what? Let, let me give you some implications. Uh, with Revelation 5 glasses on, here's some of the things we begin to realize. First, we realize that at the center of reality is one who suffers. The center of reality is the slain Lamb. Isaiah 53 tells us that the servant of God was familiar with suffering. He knew what it was like to be despised and rejected, to know sorrow and experience grief. That's huge because what it tells us is that in the midst of our suffering, Jesus is right there. He knows what it's like. No matter what you've been through, he knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to be tortured. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and betrayed by someone he loves. He, he knows what it's like to be beat. He knows what it's like to be hurt 
and to experience pain and, and to be emotionally distraught. He knows what it's like to be crushed by the weight of sin and the sin of others. He knows what it's like to shed blood. He knows. This is why the old spiritual pressed blacks would sing. No one knows the trouble I've seen. No one knows but Jesus. Because Jesus knows. And and in the midst of our suffering, he's there. You see, we have a very poor theology of suffering in our American context because we do everything we can to avoid it and to minimize it. But here at the center of reality is the lamb who knows what it is like to suffer and, get this, redeems it. Redeems it. Overcomes it. Second, at the center of reality is costly grace. Why? Why does the lamb sacrifice himself? Why does the lamb allows, why does he allow himself to be slaughtered? He, he allows it because in being slaughtered, he takes our sin on himself. And he's slaughtered for us. And he's not slaughtered because we deserve it or we merit it or because we're good. He simply allows himself to be slaughtered because of his love. He dies for us. Now, now don't make that too small. We, we talk about Jesus dying and we make it this little thing for us. But understand that what's going on here is cosmic grace, cosmic redemption. That when Jesus dies, he's dying for our sin, but he's dying for the sin of the world. He's design, dying to defeat all evil, dying to defeat all death. It's this huge thing. It's this big story that we're a part of, not this small thing. It's an amazing sense of grace. So at the center of the universe is God with his arms open. Inviting us to come to him. Understanding that nothing, no sin can keep us away because the lamb has been slaughtered and the sin is paid for. Amazing grace. Three, when we put Revelation 5 glasses on, we realize that we work from victory, not towards it. The victory is already won. Jesus has already conquered. We don't fight evil and injustice to make the victory come. The victory's already there. Just wait. It will come about. And what that means is we can live with this incredible sense of hope, knowing without question where the end of things will be. An ultimate redemption, the arrival of the kingdom, and that someday all things will be made right and justice will roll down and everything will be corrected and evil will be vanquished because in one sense it already is. It's not in question. 
bunch of seminary students were in a gym playing basketball. There's an usher, an usher, a uh, custodian in the gym watching them play. He was sitting on a chair and he was reading his Bible. One of the seminary students asked him, hey, what are you reading? And the old guy said, well, I'm reading my Bible. <laughs> and the seminarian kind of smirked a little. He said, well, what, what part of the Bible? And the old man said, oh, the book of Revelation. And the seminary student said, well, he's chuckling to me. Do you, do you understand what it means? And the old man said, yeah, I do. And the seminary student says, well, what's it mean? And the old man says, Jesus wins. And he's right. Jesus wins. Four. Fullness of life comes from the way of the lamb. Sacrificial love. The greatest strength in the universe is sacrificial love. The greatest wisdom in the universe is sacrificial love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God, although to us it's foolish. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not foolish, right? Remember the seven horns. Remember the seven eyes. Jesus just understands the secret of history. He's telling us that the kingdom comes not through the exercise of power and might, but through sacrificial love. The Messiah is not a ferocious lion that hurts others. The, the, the Messiah is a slaughtered lamb that takes the hurts of others into himself. And we are to live like the lamb. We live in a world that is centered on self-interest and personal gain. We live in a world that thinks the way you get to head, ahead is by exercising power. But the gospel says, no, 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 no. No, don't you understand the nature of the kingdom? In the kingdom, things are turned upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom doesn't come by the exercise of power. The kingdom comes by self-giving love. The goal of life is not to get ahead. The goal of life is to give yourself away. But our whole culture, our politics, our media, even our churches think the goal is personal peace and prosperity. The goal is our own self-interest. And Jesus is saying, no. The fullness of life comes by the way of the Lamb. Giving yourself away in love, even to your enemies, even to the unlovable, even to those who won't appreciate it 
or understand it. Even to those who may slaughter you. Five, all of history will serve the purposes of the Lamb establishing his kingdom. All of history is teleological. All of history is heading to this kingdom, this reality of God's purposes being fulfilled both in judgment and in blessing in his kingdom. That's where it's going. And God is using all of it to move there. You see, that, that's why we don't have to look out for ourselves. We can trust in him because even if we die in the process, even if we give away all in following his way, in the way of the lamb, we know the end of the story is with him. We know the end of the story is, is resurrection. We know where it's going. <laughs> Yesterday we had the funeral for Job Maldonado, 91 years old. Larry calls him the pastor because he was in ministry for so many years. He was a shut-in. Died of a stroke last week. I walked into the building and I saw Job, his eldest son. And I walked up to Job and I asked him how it was going. And he looks at me and he says, great. And I thought, Job, your dad just died. What, what, what do you mean great? Well, Job knows where his dad's at. He, he knows where history is heading he knows that death is not the end. Knows. And lastly, every creature and all of life must be about worshiping the Lamb. <laughs> I, I had a friend, I was talking to him about this passage, and I, I asked him, I said, why, why do we worship Jesus? Why do you worship Jesus? And he said to me, he says, well, it gives me a sense of peace and it makes me feel good. And I kind of laughed. And he kind of laughed because he knows that was a terrible answer. It's a terrible answer. It's a terrible answer. Worship is, is never about us. Worship is about him. We worship Jesus because he is the slain lamb who can break the seals and initiate the plans of God. Worship is never about my experience or how I feel or the tingle it gives me or the warm feeling or a sense of peace. Worship is about glorifying the Lamb of God who was slain, who brings about the purposes of God. That's what worship is about. That's what all of life is about. Worship is not just what takes place here. Worship is declaring God worthy, and we're to declare the Lamb worthy in every aspect of how we live. Life is to be Lamb-centric about Him. We just try to make it about us, but it's not. It's about him. The slaughtered lamb who slices through the seals and implements the purposes of God. 
And when all creation worships, what do the four creatures say? Amen. So be it. Amen. I want to give you a moment to bow your heads. And in silence, I want you to think through what it would be like. What would your life be like if you put on Revelation 5 glasses and life in its totality became about the Lamb? 